from Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 50. And you'll find that on page 748 of the Red Pew Bible. Luke 23, verse 50. Thanks, Brett. Well, good morning. We uh, pick our story up. Jesus has been executed uh, and he's about to be buried. So let's begin. Uh, Luke 23, verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about 11 kilometres from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what, what, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
What is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Oh, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And their eyes were opened, they recognised him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up, returned at once to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. Well, let's bow in prayer. Um, gracious Father, thank you so much for your word and we pray that um, uh, by your spirit that we would be uh, learning more of the, our Lord Jesus Christ and growing in our affection and our confidence in him. And uh, we pray the same for our children as they uh, study your word in Sunday school. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed that every <clears throat> few years or so a uh, TV show is screened which promises to uh, completely debunk the Christian faith. seems to happen around about Easter time or Christmas time most years, have you noticed that? Uh, a number of years ago Channel 10 screened a show which was called The Lost Tomb of Jesus. And it was truly a gripping and compelling uh, documentary which made the astonishing claim that uh, a tomb had been discovered uh, around Jerusalem, which uh, until recently had contained the, the very bones of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, it was a um, two hours uh, whereby they provided the evidence to support this particular claim. Uh, at a press conference, the producer of the documentary said, and I quote, To a layman's eye, it seems pretty darn compelling. This is the biggest archaeological story of the century. <clears throat> well, I'd go further than that and say it's the biggest archaeological story of the entire human history, uh, if it was in fact true. Because it would prove that the... Resurrection of Jesus never happened. Uh, 
which is a pretty substantial thing. The, the problem was that the people who made the show, they, they did their research and they took their research and presented it straight to the unsuspecting public uh, without allowing expert archaeologists to review their work first. It was only uh, after the show was screened on TV that the true experts were able to speak up and they were able to explain how you could drive a semi-trailer uh, through the holes uh, in the claim that this particular show was making. There are, of course, many people who really, really want to believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead. Because if Jesus has not risen from the dead, then he therefore has no claim on their lives. They don't actually have to repent and turn to Jesus and live with him as your Lord. And so a show like The Lost Tomb of Jesus, well, that's great. That's, they'll grab hold of that sort of thing. It's all of the evidence that they need to support their position in life. Uh, they'll believe anything which says that Jesus did not rise because it suits their lifestyle. One of the strange things about that is that it's actually very similar to the allegation that some non-Christians make, uh, make against the, uh, the first disciples of Jesus. Because uh, an issue that non-Christians have to deal with is uh, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then how do you explain the uh, transformed life? Uh, how do you explain the fact that uh, the disciples spent the rest of their lives proclaiming that he did in fact rise from the dead. Why would the disciples believe in the resurrection? Well, skeptics say that it's because they were vulnerable. They had lived with Jesus for three years or so. They had heard his teaching. They had heard him say to them that he would rise from the dead and after the crucifixion, with all of the stuff that they'd had to go through and to some extent uh, confusion and disappointment and so on, after the crucifixion, they were living on the brink. Uh, they wanted to believe. And so the slightest hint, the slightest rumour of resurrection would have been enough uh, for them to actually say that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, how does that view of things square up with what we read in the Gospel of Luke. Well, a couple of weeks back in Luke 23, we considered the death of Jesus on the cross. And now as we uh, come to today's passage, we, uh, we explore the, the way that the disciples reacted to his death. And so if you want to open up your Bibles at uh, Luke 23... The first reaction comes from a man whose name was Joseph. Uh, he was a Jewish man from the town in Judea called Arimathea. And in verse 50, Luke informs us that something of his character, that he was a good and an upright man. Um, Matthew, in his gospel, goes further and shares with us that uh, this Joseph of Arimathea was in fact a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's described as being a disciple of Jesus. Uh, 
And not only is he a disciple, but he's also rich. But get this, here's the really critical thing. He's a disciple of Jesus, but he's also a member of the Jewish ruling council. That is, he belongs to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, who earlier that, uh, on the night before and early that morning, had actually um, put Jesus on trial. Uh, they had found him guilty of blasphemy and they passed him on to Pontius Pilate uh, saying that uh, he was claiming to be a king and they therefore set him up uh, to be put on trial for his very life. This is the Sanhedrin and Joseph of Arimathea is a member of the Sanhedrin and he's a disciple. But he didn't go along with what they said. He didn't agree with it. He did not, in verse 51, he had not consented to their decision or their action. Now, we don't know how Joseph had become a disciple of Jesus. But what we do know is that in the midst of the council of those who had convicted Jesus, that this man stood firm. Uh, that he did not condone, he did not consent what they had done. He's a disciple of Jesus, but did he expect resurrection? Was he living with the view that Jesus was actually only going to be in the grave for a short time and then he was going to burst into life again? Well, imagine hypothetically, and you've got to, this is very hypothetical, imagine that someone who you cared for had died but that you knew that that person was going to rise from the dead on the third day what would you do after their death would you go and organize a funeral for them would you organize a burial for them if you knew that it, this was only temporary well joseph did joseph organized a burial now Jesus, Jesus, of course, was, uh, was an executed criminal. Uh, typically, the Romans would deny such executed criminals a proper burial. But uh, there's a bit of a culture clash here um, because Jews would typically do everything that they could to ensure that someone had a proper burial. Which, just as an aside, I think that's an that's a appropriate thing, isn't it? Uh, that uh, my view is that any per every person, any person, because we are made in the image of God, uh, that uh, we deserve the respect and the honour and the dignity of a proper burial uh, after we die. That's, to me, that's an important thing. But back to the, the issue at hand here, uh, we do know that on festive occasions such as Passover, the Romans would sometimes allow executed uh, convicts to be uh, buried by their families or their uh, close friends. And so it's not surprising that uh, Pilate allowed Joseph to do exactly that. What might be surprising was that this was just not any ordinary burial. This was a very honourable burial in the tomb of a rich man. Apparently, uh, Joseph uh, now lived in Jerusalem and he'd kind of planned in advance, uh, he'd gone and purchased his own burial plot. He was thinking 
beyond death for himself. And uh, it wasn't far from where Jesus was crucified, but it was a rich man's tomb, which fulfilled what Isaiah had prophesied 800 years earlier when he said of the Christ that he would be buried in a rich man's grave. Uh, this was a tomb which had been carved into the side of a, uh, a rock face. Uh, it would have had a small entry chamber and through that the main chamber where there would have been um, stone benches along the, uh, the sides uh, for the, uh, the bodies to be laid. Uh, the entrance to the tomb had on the ground, the stone ground, uh, would have had um, grooves cut into it so that uh, into those grooves could be rolled a, uh, a, a round, a disc-shaped stone which would cover the entrance to the, the tomb and would close it. And so this is what Joseph uh, is giving for the body of Jesus. Does it sound like Joseph is expecting Jesus to rise from the dead on the third day? I don't think so. Now, I'm only speculating here, but my guess is that if, if you expected someone to come back to life, uh, then uh, I don't think you'd be going and burying them. I think you'd be taking them home, wouldn't you? <laughs> because you only, you know, a couple of days' time, they're going to be back to life. You wouldn't entomb them and then roll a large stone across. Now, Joseph expects this to be permanent. I think we can see that. So then in verse 55, uh, Luke tells us now about some, some women, godly, faithful uh, disciples of Jesus. We read about them in verse 55, if you care to have a look at that. Uh, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee, so they've travelled with him all the way down to Jerusalem, followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Now, uh, it was three o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus died. The Sabbath commences at 6 p.m. Uh, so these women, they've only got a short window of, of opportunity. T the time is limited. They've got enough time just to follow Joseph of Arimathea to find out where the body is being laid and then to go back to their homes uh, where they would prepare the spices and the perfumes that they would later take to the body of Jesus. And so again, ask the question, do you think that these women are eagerly expecting resurrection? And the answer is no. They were expecting the body of Jesus to decompose. That's, that's why they gathered the the, uh, the spices and the perfumes. Spices and perfumes, which they would not apply to the body until after the Sabbath. Now, by the way, this is a very interesting Sabbath because what does the word Sabbath mean? Well, it can mean seventh, it can mean rest. And the reason for that's obvious because in Genesis that uh, we work for six days, and then on the seventh day we, we rest. Which I reckon is a pretty good pattern for life, don't you? The idea of working seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, you know, forget it. You know, that's, that's dreadful. 
Uh, this is a good pattern for life, but it also points us to God's ultimate plan for us. And that is that we should experience true rest, eternal rest, rest for our souls. That rest which can only be found when the burden of our sins has been lifted from us and we experience forgiveness and an open relationship with God, our Creator. Remember, Jesus once said, Come to me, all you who are uh, weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest for your, for your souls. Rest for your souls. This Sabbath, this particular Sabbath, is in fact the very last Sabbath of the Old Covenant. Because after this particular Sabbath day comes the event which both fulfills and secures everything which the Sabbath pointed towards. And that is resurrection. Proving that the debt of our sin has been paid by the sufficient sacrifice of God the Son on the cross as the wrath of God was poured out on him instead of us, proving that, uh, that death has now been defeated and proving that eternal joyful rest with God is now available for all of us who put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For immediately after this particular Sabbath day, Jesus is raised from the dead. Death is no more. Death has lost its sting. Now, the first thing the next day after the Sabbath, in verse 24, the women uh, took their spices to the tomb. And, by the way, uh, they didn't have the foggiest idea how they were going to get into the tomb. Uh, Mark, in his Gospel, tells us that on the way they discussed, well, Who's going to roll the stone away? But they didn't have to worry about that, it turns out, because when they arrived at the tomb, what did they find in 24 verse 2? Well, first of all, they found that the stone has already been rolled away. Secondly, they discovered that the body of, the, of Jesus, uh, the Lord Jesus, I might add, Luke says, the body of the Lord Jesus was not there. And isn't that interesting how Luke now refers to Jesus by the title, the Lord Jesus. I'm happy to be corrected on this, but this is the first time I can find that, the Lord Jesus, uh, in Luke's Gospel, uh, because of the resurrection. And as if the missing body is not frightening enough, in verse 3, uh, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning suddenly stood beside them. Now, who do you think they might be? They might be angels, messengers from God whose words to the women were both, on the one hand, they're kind of firm words, and they're also reassuring words, because in verse 5, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Now, brothers and sisters, these women, they should have been expecting. They should have been anticipating. They should have been waiting for the resurrection, because as the angels point out here, this is exactly what Jesus had foretold 
them would happen. In passages like Luke 9, in Luke chapter 18, verse 32, where Jesus says that the Son of Man, quote, will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and they'll kill him. And these women have just seen that happen. But the Lord Jesus continued by saying, on the third day, he will rise again. Now, it's easy for you and I to understand what that meant. Because guess what? We live on this side of the fact of the resurrection. But for them, up until this moment, that whatever they'd understood by Jesus, when Jesus said that he'd rise again, it was, it was a mystery to them. They didn't quite get it. We shouldn't judge them because we've got the benefit of hindsight. We've got the benefit of living on this side of the resurrection. And let's ourselves think about some of the things which Jesus has promised, which we have not yet fulfilled. You know, Jesus promised that one day he will come back again. Now, uh, is that a promise that shapes your life? Are you expecting Jesus to return? Are you anticipating that Jesus will return? Are you shaping your life around the promise that Jesus has clearly given that he will return one day in judgment? Or when that happens, will that come as a bit of a surprise to you? Will you be a bit shocked by that? It's worth thinking about, isn't it? As we uh, consider these women and their response to the promise that Jesus had made. Now, what we do see here, though, is that these, were not, these women were not vulnerable followers who were just poised on the brink of believing in resurrection. It actually took an empty tomb and two messengers from God himself for the mystery of what Jesus had been saying to them to be fully revealed and to be resolved for them. Now, the same goes for all of the other disciples. The women aren't alone here. Joseph of Arimathea is not alone here because in verse 9, uh, what happened when these women then raced back to uh, the apostles and the other disciples to tell them what had happened? Well, have a look at verse 11. In verse 11, uh, they've gone back to the uh, to, to uh, the, he names the, the women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women as well. And they went back and they told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now, apparently the word for nonsense here is, it's also used in medicine to mean delirium. Now, does it sound like the apostles were just weak, vulnerable men who would grasp at straws, who would believe uh, anything just so as to make them feel better about Jesus' death and the meaning of their lives? 
Of course not. They thought that the women were crazy. They thought that women had gone, you know, that they were babbling stupid stuff. That they were delirious. Now, all of them, of course, except for Peter, the enthusiast, who thinks, I better go and check this out. And he races back to the tomb and he finds that the tomb's empty. So good on you, Peter. But here we see Joseph of Arimathea, these godly women, the apostles and all of the disciples, how many of them were expecting Jesus to rise from the dead? None of them. Nobody. But something happened which meant that they and especially the apostles spent the rest of their lives proclaiming the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that one thing which happened was resurrection. Resurrection. Now, do you think it's kind of strange that here on the Sunday before Christmas that we're actually talking about Easter Sunday? It's, um, it's the way our preaching program has worked out. It doesn't quite match any traditional church calendar, does it? Or does it? Well, remember Joseph of Arimathea. He's described as being a righteous man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. That's not unlike another man who we met very much earlier in Luke's gospel, is it? Uh, remember, just after the birth of Jesus, where Mary and Joseph had taken Jesus to, to, to the temple in Jerusalem, and there they met a man, didn't they? A man who's described as being a righteous man named Simeon, who was, and we're told, waiting for the consolation of Israel waiting for the comfort of Israel, waiting for the rest which comes in the kingdom of God. Uh, in Luke 2 verse 25, the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon and when he, he met the, the newborn baby Jesus, well, he praised God and he said, Lord, I'm ready to go home now. You can take me, Lord, whenever you want. I am fulfilled because my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. And then he said to Mary, through this child, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own heart too. So it's good news and bad news, isn't it? It's kind of what we've seen in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus would expose the hearts of, of evil people. That Jesus would be handed over to the Gentiles, that he would be mocked, insulted, spat on, flogged and killed for us, for you and me as he who had no sin became sin for us, so that in trusting in his death that we might become the righteousness of God, that the burden of the guilt of our sin would be lifted from us and placed on him instead. 
that we might through his resurrection receive rest for our souls. Friends, uh, if anyone ever did find the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and no doubt someone will because it, it's there uh, in Jerusalem, uh, and it will probably contain some bones in it because it is, after all, a, a tomb. But there won't be the bones of Jesus. There won't be the bones of Jesus of Nazareth because he rose from the grave, which is the only reason why here next Sunday we can celebrate his birth. Because the debt for sin has been paid. Death has been conquered. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And thanks be to God, says Paul, because Jesus has been risen from the dead so that people like you and I can enter into the eternal rest of the kingdom of God. Have you put your trust in Jesus as yet? If not, why not? This Christmas is a great time to do that. The lost tomb of Jesus TV show totally failed to prove that the bones of Jesus had been buried in a tomb for the last 2,000 years. Uh, one of the church leaders who was interviewed on that show, he, um, he said that if Jesus was not resurrected, that it wouldn't diminish his faith at all. To which I thought, actually, brother, that's a really nice thought that you've got there, but you're wrong. It should shatter your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if his bones were found to be in a tomb in Jerusalem somewhere. Because if Jesus has not been resurrected, then the Christian faith is just a complete fraud. It's a hoax. We might as well just eat, drink, be merry, live your life as if there's nothing more to be had because tomorrow you die, there is no eternal life, there is no eternal rest. Ultimately, there's no actual purpose in your life. But he has been raised. He has been raised. And God invites you to trust that Jesus' death has paid for your sin. God invites you to turn your life over to the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. God invites you to join with all others who put their trust in him, in his everlasting kingdom, to enjoy and to experience rest which goes on with God your creator, both now and forevermore. And I can't think of a better time to put your faith in Jesus than now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your great plan. Your great plan that took Jesus to the cross. Your great plan whereby uh, you exerted your power in raising him from the dead. We thank you, Father God, that through his death and resurrection, that the guilt of our sin has been paid and the, the, the way has been opened for eternal life. Father, we thank you that Jesus will come again one day. We pray that we will be those who are prepared for him because we've put our trust in Jesus. And we pray for many, many more people that they would come to understand 
the true meaning of Christmas through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.